In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue discussing the religion of Judaism um, that we began last time. Um, we'll just uh, start here speaking about the views of God. Um, I think we covered this last time. The central religious belief of Judaism is that there is only one God. Monotheism was uncommon at the time Judaism was born. The fact of God's existence is accepted almost without question. We spoke about how um, what made Judaism very different from other religions at the time is that they were monotheistic, whereas almost all other religions were, were polytheistic. Proof is not needed and is rarely offered. Judaism views the existence of God as a necessary prerequisite for the existence of the universe. So the universe could not come into be without the existence of God. The existence of the universe is sufficient proof of the existence of God. There is only one God. No other being participated in the work of creation. God is a unity. He is a single, whole, complete, indivisible entity. He cannot be divided into parts or described by attributes. So, so they consider him to be indivisible, um, and, and attributes cannot be used to, to describe him. Any attempt to ascribe attributes to God is merely man's imperfect attempt to understand the infinite. In a, in a sense, um, we, we also kind of believe this. So um, there's what's called apophatic versus cataphatic theo theology. Apophatic theology, or it also could be called negative theology, is that we, because we acknowledge that God cannot be fully described in any human terms, and that any human terms that we use to describe God are limited, so instead we, we describe him, instead of saying what he is, we say what he is not. So for instance, in the liturgy, when we say he is immeasurable, when we say he is timeless, when we say he is unchangeable, we're taking something and then we're making the reverse and we're saying this is the, like, like the, whatever the limitation is, the reverse of it is God. So God is timeless, right? As opposed to describing him with positive terminology, which is like saying God is, I mean, of course we, we do both, but... Um, like when we say God is great, for instance, we can say God is great, but I also say that other things are great. Like I say chocolate cake is great. You know, I say other things that I like are great, but that doesn't mean that the greatness of God is at the same, you know, at the same level as the greatness of the chocolate cake. Okay. So when we use positive terms to describe God, because we use those terms to describe other things as well, they are not really giving a, a kind of like a clear picture on the description because really God is beyond our comprehension. So that's why we, we tend to focus a lot on the, the, the apophatic, which is the negative theology, what saying what God is not. And this is similar here to what this is saying is every time you try to ascribe an attribute to God, it's limited in what you are really able to describe. One of the primary expressions of Jewish faith, recited three, uh, three times daily in a prayer, is the Shema, which begins, Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This simple, sim simple statement also indicates that it is to the Lord alone to whom one should offer praise or prayer, for he is the Lord alone. This is an important kind of formula of prayer, um, that the Jews use directly from the Old Testament and the book of Deuteronomy, which is part of the Torah, which we said the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament um, written by Moses. Here, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. In Judaism, God is seen as the creator of everything, including evil. Jews totally reject the idea of Satan bringing evil into the world. So 
as a different than in Christianity, right? We, and we do not believe that God created evil. We believe that God only created good. And all of the creation that he created was good. Evil came about as a result of the free will of the creatures that he created that deviated from his plan. And this is what became evil. Kind of like when you say that darkness is the absence of light. Right? Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is not a thing in and of itself. It is just the absence of, their, of the light. So light is the thing that exists, and the absence of it is darkness. The same is true, according to our belief, of, uh, of evil. Evil is the absence of good. Even evil is the absence of God. So whatever God is, is good, and whatever God is not, or whether it's anyone who has chosen away, gone astray from God, this is, this is evil. And so this is why Satan is evil, because he chose to rebel against God and to establish a kingdom that is apart and away from God. In addition, God is holy, incorporeal, genderless, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, and perfect. They also believe God will send the Messiah and the good will and the good will be rewarded and the wicked punished. So the idea of the Messiah, um, who is the, the savior or the one who is to come, the anointed one, Messiah literally means the anointed, um, is something that is believed among the Jews. And actually all of the prophecies in the Old Testament point to this one who is to come. But their view and understanding of who is this Messiah, what does he represent and what is it that he is bringing is very different than the Christian understanding. In the Christian understanding, we, we understand it in a spiritual way. What is it that, that the Messiah is bringing us or has brought us? He's bringing us forgiveness of sins. He's bringing us salvation. He's bringing us to the eternal heavenly kingdom. This is the spiritual work of the Messiah. As opposed to in the Jewish understanding, because in the Jewish understanding, they are thinking not as much spiritually, but more physically. So they, are, they believe that the Messiah is a figure, kind of like King David, who is going to come and he's going to be a very powerful king that God is going to send in order to restore the nation of Israel to its original grandeur and power um, that it had under King David, right? So this, this is, again, kind of going back to some maybe the political things that we were talking about last time. This is another reason why the politics of Israel is a very important thing to, Ju to the Jews, because it is seen that actually the fulfillment of the prophecies that God is bringing about and in the coming of the Messiah, it is to establish a very powerful nation and restore the people again. So the, the reward that they are looking for is not so much the heavenly reward or a spiritual reward or an eternity with God. They are looking more toward um, a physical nation, which is very powerful that they are members of. God is not merely some supreme force, but is a person, one with emotions of anger, sadness, and joy. We believe God also is a person, as a trinity made up of three persons, um, but personal in the sense that he is not a force. He, he is a person you can speak to. You can speak to God and you can hear from God, right? He has thoughts, he has a mind, he has a will, okay? Um, when it comes to the idea of the emotions of God, we do not believe that God is emotional in the sense that human beings are emotional. For instance, when the scripture speaks about the wrath of God and God becomes angry, what does that mean? Like if you think about as human beings, when we become angry, Right? We have this feeling of anger that consumes us, and that feeling um, maybe is irrational, 
it's a strong emotion that we feel that then causes us to take action and oftentimes the actions we take when we are angry are 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 not the great not the best actions when we speak about the wrath of god we are not speaking about emotion in a human sense we're not speaking about that god like lost control of himself like for instance if you see the example of when christ was uh, saw the money changers in the temple and he saw that they were um, buying and selling and he was upset because they turned the temple which is a holy place the place of god they turned it into a marketplace he became upset and the scripture says that he was overthrowing the tables overturning the tables of the money changers maybe this very kind of uh, we see it as like a, an, an act that is done out of like pure anger maybe one of us as human beings if ever we would do something like this it would be because we are so angry that we are just like letting out our anger in a kind of a violent way but but god is not like this god is not a human being he does actions based on thought based on will based on reason and if he felt that this is the action that should be done in order to communicate the the magnitude of the sin that the people were committing he did so to get the attention of the people not because he was overwhelmed and consumed with anger so a lot of the emotions that are ascribed to god in the scripture are so that we as human beings can relate to his way of thinking can relate to what he likes and what he does not like what he approves of and what he doesn't approve of so if something is done that it, that god disapproves of strongly because it is very damaging very wrong then we'll say god became very angry right but that's not the same kind of human emotion right that that we that we feel because god is spirit he is above all a person with whom one can have a relationship he desires to share the full gamut of emotions with men to this end god is seen as continually active in a creative way constantly working in the world to offer men the opportunity to fulfill their obligations toward him and toward fellow men we would agree with this that god is constantly working in the world and working in his people okay what about the view of man and the universe in the Jew in the in the jewish faith the material world is considered overall very good because this is what was declared to be by God after the creation and man has a unique responsibility to order it according to God's purposes God had placed um, Adam and Eve to have authority over the world and to subdue it some Jews go as far as to say that all people animals and things contain a divine spark which man is assigned to call forth to completeness through loving action the personhood of God and his need for relationships form an analogy for man's most pressing need to live in harmony with other men. History is the arena of God's purposeful activity, and Jews often look for signs of his approval or judgment in historical events. So it's, it's interpreted that, for instance, even in the Old Testament, whenever the Jewish people would go and to fight against their enemies, if god grants them victory over their enemies in the war then this is seen by the jews as the favor of god upon them and if they were to be defeated in the war then this would be to seen as the god's anger upon them or god's dissatisfaction with them a very good example of this is when the jews entered into the promised land the first city that they encountered was the city of jericho and god told them what to do in order to conquer the city he told them to go walk around the city and they did this for seven days and then the walls of jericho fell and they were able to take the city so this is an example of god's favor upon them that he granted them this the very next battle 
was a, a battle against a city called Ai. And in this battle, even though the city was um, not nearly as, as fortified, but they lost the battle. And immediately they concluded that this must be because we have lost the favor of God. And sure enough, there was a man who had taken one of the accursed things, something that God had commanded them not to take from the, the, the Canaanites who were there and was hiding it in his tent. And so for this reason, God was upset and he did not grant them the favor or the blessing in order to win the battle. And so they lost the battle. So the idea that all historical events are kind of interpreted in the lens of if good things happen, that means that we have God's favor. And if bad things happen, that means that we do not have the favor of God. This is the, the Jewish kind of understanding. The distinguishing mark of humans is their ability to make ethical choices. It is to the, those choices that Judaism most often addresses itself directly. When Genesis 2.7 says God formed man, it uses the Hebrew word vayitzer, meaning formed. The Talmud finds special meaning in the unique spelling of the word in this context with two yods instead of one. The yod is like the letter, the, the letter Y. The two yods, the rabbis explain, stand for the two impulses found in humans, the yetzer tov and the yetzer ra. According to this view, the yetzer tov is the moral conscience that reminds a person of God's law when one considers a specific action or choice. The yetzer ra is the impulse to satisfy one's own desires, uh, needs and desires. There is nothing intrinsically evil about the yetzer ra as it was created by God and it is natural to humankind. So in a sense, it's a little bit like the idea of the flesh versus the spirit. There is like in our conscience, there is the idea of um, the work of God in us and there's also our own desires. And here it's not necessarily saying that the, the yetzer raw or the, the impulse to satisfy our own desires are necessarily evil, but just kind of the human need and, and kind of the, the human desire um, is part of this, um, uh, what they call here the, um, what was it called? The, uh, the vayetzer, the vayetzer is composed of these two elements. It also, is what drives us to, to good things, such as eating, drinking, having a family, and making a living. living. However, it can easily lead to sin when not kept in check by the Yetzir Tov. Okay, this relationship between the human desires and the, the, the godly desires. The idea of human free will is fundamental to Judaism. The concept of original sin is rejected, and every person has the ability to choose good and evil. So, um, as, as Christians, um, we believe in the original sin, which means that the, we are born having inherited uh, the corruption and the sin of Adam and Eve. And this is what is cleansed in baptism. The, the, the Jews did not believe in the idea of original sin, but the focus is more about the decisions that each person makes. And there is not any emphasis on grace. You know, as Christians, we fundamentally believe that even though cr God created us to be good, but yet we have been corrupted through sin. And so in that corruption, we become very liable to live away from God in a life of sin. And so in order for us to be redeemed, we need the grace of God working in us and that we are not sufficient in ourselves in order to practice what is right, okay, to practice the will of God. Whereas the focus in the Jewish faith is that each person has the ability to choose good and evil, and it is simply a choice that we make. Do I choose this or do I choose this? Without the need for the grace of God working in us. This is actually a heresy 
that was introduced in the church, in the early church, by a man named Pelagius. And this heresy of Pelagianism essentially was saying that everyone can choose to live a good moral life apart from the grace of God without the need of the Spirit of God working in them. And this is something that was rejected because as Christians, we believe that fundamentally the only way for us to live a life that is pleasing to God is through the work of the grace of God in us and not only just our will, our actions. What does Judaism say about salvation and the afterlife? For the Jew, it seems salvation and the afterlife are disconnected from one another. In the Jewish mindset, the concept of salvation is more corporate or national than personal. It, it, again, it's the idea that we are the people of God, the nation of God, Israel, and that the salvation comes to all the people. Like we are, we are, we are delivered all together, as opposed to the focus being very much on the individual person. Of course, in Christianity, we believe that salvation is the individual. Actually, this is what we we're talking about in the sermon today. It's individual. Right? Just because we are all in the church doesn't mean it's not that the church is saved all as a whole. Right? Each individual person will be judged individually. It is not something that is a corporate. The salvation of the individual Jew is directly bound up with the salvation of the entire people and includes the hope of being rescued from national enemies, of the temple's complete restoration, and of the full corporate inheritance of the covenantal blessings of God. Okay? So again, the restoration of the nation, the, the protection from enemies, the restoration of the temple that had been destroyed in 70 AD that we spoke about last time that they are looking to rebuild, right? All of these things are kind of in the mindset of a Jewish person what salvation is. Salvation is the setting up of this kingdom, this powerful kingdom. For the Jew, the Messiah or Savior is a this-worldly temporal leader who will rescue corporate Israel from her enemies and make the nation great in all the earth. This is one of the reasons that Jesus was rejected from being the Messiah, because he certainly did not fit this criteria. He was not a powerful leader who came to establish his throne and to destroy the enemies of Israel. That is not what he came for. And certainly when they see him on the cross, uh, apparently defeated and weak, they are all the more convinced that this is not the Messiah because he does not fit any of the criteria that they were looking for in the Messiah. And this is why they mocked him. And they said, you know, that you are the king of the Jews. You're the one coming to say you're the king of the Jews, and yet you are, uh, uh, you are, you are being beaten, you are being tortured, you are putting up, you're being put up on the cross. In their mind, the person who is the Messiah they would, never ex would never do this. He would never be so weak to allow himself to, to, to be attacked in this way. Okay, so this is why it was a stumbling block for them. It was a foolishness for them to think that this man could ever be the Messiah. The idea of a savior of the, Jew, of the Jewish uh, people then is bound up with the idea of national Israel and the restoration of the kingdom of David on earth. This partly explains why the Jewish people tend to reject Jesus as their savior. From their point of view, Jesus did not rescue national Israel uh, or set up the kingdom of David. Okay, we just said that. The Messianic age, the period when the Messiah comes, will usher in the following. This is what they are believing about, based on prophecy, about what, will, what, what should happen at the time of the Messiah. Peace among all nations, perfect harmony and abundance in nature, all Jews return from exile to Israel. 
universal acceptance of the Jewish God and Jewish religion, no sin or evil, all Israel will obey the commandments, reinstatement of the temple, at this time the righteous dead will be resurrected, but the wicked will not. They believe all these things are to happen at the time of the Messiah. The Messianic age is only one part of what the Jews mean when they say the world to come. The other part refers to the afterlife, but there, is, but there really is not much discussion on what happens after death. The Torah and the Talmud alike focus on the purpose of earthly life, which is to fulfill one's duties to God and one's fellow man. Succeeding at this brings reward, failing at it brings punishment. So there is not much discussion or focus on life after death and what, it, what does that life look like. In Judaism, the belief in afterlife is less a leap of faith than a logical outgrowth of other Jewish beliefs. If one believes in a God who is all-powerful and all-just, one cannot believe that this world, in which evil far too often triumphs, is the only arena in which human life exists. So if we believe that God is just, and we look around us and we say there is no justice here, then there must be a place to come where the justice will be fulfilled. And we are similar in belief in this. We know, for instance, that in this world, a lot of times we do not see the justice of God. The people who are wicked get away with their wicked schemes. And the innocent oftentimes are mistreated and there is no, just, there's no justice for them. And so we believe that the justice will come in the next life. And in that life, God will judge according to everyone and everything that has been done. And so we find justice in God there. For if this existence is the final word and God permits evil to win, then it cannot be that God is good. Thus, when someone says he or she believes in God, but not in the afterlife, it would seem that either they have not thought the issue through, or they don't believe in God, or the divine being in whom they believe is amoral or immoral. So the idea that there is an afterlife comes as a natural extension of the idea that there is no justice here. So there must be an afterlife in order for justice to prevail. What do they believe about morality? The source and ideal of all morality is God, in whose ways man is to walk. As he is merciful and gracious, so man should be. When the Israelites accepted the Ten Commandments from God at Mount Sinai, they committed themselves to following a code of law which regulates both how they relate with God and how they treat other people. So. The moral life of a Jewish person is based on God's commandments and specifically the Ten Commandments that they received. Torah, to point the way or give direction, often translated law, refers in Judaism to the total pattern of behavior applicable to all aspects of communal and individual life. It is to be found not only in the Old Testament scriptures, but also in a wide variety of oral traditions, rituals, ceremonies, stories, and commentaries on scripture. Jews have often tried to develop rules of behavior to cover each situation encountered in their various cultures. Thus, a gigantic literature covering codes of conduct has arisen. From time to time, movements have emerged that have tried to cut through those rules and get back to the original meaning of the Torah, but legalism has been a perennial problem of Judaism. Even in the time of the New Testament, the group of the Pharisees, for instance, they would introduce additional laws beyond what was commanded in the Torah, and they would expect the people to follow them. And those laws were so difficult that no one could follow them. And actually, Jesus Christ 
he explicitly rebuked the uh, the leaders, the Pharisees, and told them that they are putting such a burden on the people that no one is able to to perform, right? Because they were adding more and more on top of what the scriptures already said. Marriage and children are held in high regard by Judaism. Singleness is looked down on even for religious leaders, and much time is spent teaching children the precepts of the faith. What about worship? God was worshipped by burning animal sacrifices and altars built in the open. This was in the Old Testament. This was a way of finding forgiveness of sins was through the offering of burnt sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the temple. The Israelites did not worship their God in a building or temple until the time of Solomon. So prior to this, they had the tabernacle, which was built in a similar setup, but it was a portable tent that they could break down and and build again as they traveled in the wilderness from place to place. And this remained the place of offering sacrifices until they finally moved into their permanent land in Israel, and King Solomon built a temple which was very similar to the tabernacle but in a larger scale and a permanent building. Offering of animal sacrifice continued with the flesh burned in the courtyard of the temple while prayers were offered to God inside the temple. During the years the southern kingdom was in exile, changes took place with regard to Jewish worship. Okay, so the, the kingdom of Israel was broken down into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom was called Judah and was made up of two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And the remaining ten tribes were in the northern kingdom called the kingdom of Israel. Okay, so they became split. During the years where the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, was in exile, so the southern kingdom, as a consequence of their idol worship, God allowed them to go into exile to, the, to Babylon at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they stayed there for 70 years. So during this time of exile, there were some changes that happened. Since the temple could not be used as a central place of worship, houses of prayer called synagogues were established By the time the Jews returned to their land, the synagogue had become firmly established as the place of worship, but not sacrifice. So prior to the exile, the primary place of worship was in the temple in the form of offering sacrifices. Once the people went to exile, there was no temple there in Babylon. There was no temple. And so the worship changed from being focused on the burning of sacrifices, which they could no longer do, and instead became focused on the synagogue worship, which is like a place of prayer and teaching. And that became the primary thing that they did. And that's why even in the, the, the New Testament, we read about the synagogue. Whereas in the Old Testament, you don't read about the synagogue because the synagogue had not yet been established by that. The practice of sacrifice officially stopped in the year 70 AD when the Roman army destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, the place where sacrifices were offered. The Torah specifically commands the Jews not to offer sacrifices wherever they, f- uh, wherever they feel like it. They are only permitted to offer sacrifice in the place that God has chosen for that purpose. It would be a sin to offer sacrifices in another place. And surely there were, op- there were times when people did uh, offer sacrifice incorrectly and they were punished. Along with the synagogue, which can exist wherever there is a copy of the Torah and 10 adult Jewish males, that's kind of what you need to institute a synagogue, arose the figure of the rabbi. The rabbi is like the teacher, the one who is responsible for teaching in the synagogue. 
The rabbi is not a priest or a minister in the traditional sense. The word rabbi literally means my master. With the establishment of the Torah as the voice of God, there also rose the need for someone to spend time studying the scripture and teaching the community. Those persons who had the time, interest, and intelligence to study gradually began to be singled out and eventually became known as rabbis. Recitation of prayers is the central characteristic of Jewish worship. These prayers, often with instructions and commentary, are found in the Siddur, the traditional Jewish prayer book. Observant Jews are expected to recite three prayers daily and more on the Sabbath and Jewish holidays. While solitary prayer is valid, attending synagogue to pray with the minion or quorum of ten adult males is considered ideal. As with most religious services, the length and content of the synagogue service depends on the sect and the customs of the particular community. In general, one can expect to hear the most Hebrew used in an Orthodox service and the least in Reform services, and services in Reform temples also tend to be shorter than those held in Orthodox shoals and conservative synagogues. So if you remember, we spoke about there's three forms of Judaism. There's the uh, Orthodox Jew, which is the most conservative, uh, and, and then there's the reform, which is the, the least conservative. Those are like the two extremes. Many synagogues have a hazen or cantor who is a professional or lay professor, sorry, lay professional singer employed for the purpose of leading the congregation in prayer. So this is an overview of Christianity, since, uh, or of, sorry, of Judaism. Since Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, one would expect there to be a greater agreement about who God is and how we understand his relation, to his relation with us. Jews completely reject a Trinitarian God. It is blasphemy as far as they are concerned. God is one and only one. Jews really have no opinion about what happened to the death sentence that Adam and, Adam and Eve received at the fall. So even though there are, there are indications of the Holy Trinity and the Old Testament, the, the Jews do not um, consider God in any way to be Trinity. For Jews, man retained the state in which he was born. There is no corrupt nature from which we need to be freed. We all have the ability to choose good and evil. Man can relate with God, but to commune or be united to him uh, is not even on the radar screen. So they're not looking to be in communion with God as we as Christians are, but they are looking just for obeying his commandments. Salvation is more a matter of reward than anything else. Reward for believing in God and being good. Because of this, it is not necessary for the Messiah to be divine, and in fact, they do not expect the Messiah to be divine. It is inconceivable for them that God would ever come down in the flesh. Jesus, for them, was just a blasphemer and a false prophet. And here are some uh, references if you want to read more about it. Any questions or comments before we conclude? Well, they, they can consider it to be that this is the punishment of God against them, but not that their system of belief is wrong, but that they, this is a punishment because God has allowed this to happen. Because this is not the only time that the temple had been 
pretty much destroyed. Like even if you go back to the exile period, the whole city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple and the walls and everything. And after they returned from the exile, they rebuilt everything again and everything continued. So in the mind of a Jewish person, right, then this is the consequence of their sin perhaps, but they are still looking forward to the rebuilding and the, and the reformation of the nation of Israel to make it mighty like it was before, just as this whole this happened before, right? So that's what they're looking for. Well, so the, the, while there were some people, like the Pharisees, who might have been aware that this is what actually happened, to a large extent, they lied about it to make the people realize or think that it did not happen. Actually, even in the scripture, it says what to, that they told the guards that were guarding the tomb who saw that the resurrection happened. They told them to tell people that the disciples came and stole his body. Right. So so to the to the to the group of the larger group of the Jews who maybe were not in the elite group that really knew what was happening, they believed that this whole thing was just a conspiracy. Right. And that the, 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 the resurrection didn't really happen and they just stole his body away. The Pharisees really were the only ones who should have been able to see the truth and convert and change. But because they were so obsessed with maintaining power for themselves, they weren't even open to the truth. They just, all they wanted was to maintain power. And they knew that if they admitted that this was true, then everybody would believe it and they would completely lose their power over the people. And they would lose the political clout that they had with the Romans because the Romans went to the Pharisees because the Romans wanted to maintain peace. And so the Romans saw the Pharisees as able to control the people and so if the Pharisees lost their position, then the Romans would not give them any, any preference. They would not care about them at all, and the people would not follow them. So all they cared about was that. So the fact that there, there was so much evidence for the resurrection, for the majority of the Pharisees, it didn't matter, and they just made up stories to, to, to explain what is it that happened. Yeah, they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that either their body was stolen or something else, but, but they don't believe what we believe yeah yes uh, according to their belief so they don't believe so in the old testament the people of god were the jewish people only and the gentiles were unclean to them and God told them, do not interact with the Gentiles, do not eat with them, don't intermarry with them, and so on. And the sign of them being the people of God was a sign of circumcision. And the covenant and everything that came to them was only for the Jews. And they were the ones who were the sons of Abraham, right? And, and the covenant came through Abraham. So the Jews believed at the time and still believe that they are the chosen people of God and only them. And the Messiah is only for them. Well, again, their, their thinking is more like earthly. So they're thinking about the Messiah is a king. 
the, the, the Messiah is a king who's going to come and establish himself in Israel, and Israel is going to be a powerful nation. That's the main focus that they have of the, who the Messiah is, as opposed to a kind of belief in, in uh, what is life after death going to look like and salvation for humanity and wh- what's going to happen. Even the apostles themselves, you know, like St. Peter, for instance, he did not believe that salvation was for the Gentiles until God explicitly made it clear to him. And after he went to the Gentiles, Cornelius, and he baptized him, the rest of the disciples, when they saw him do that, they rebuked him. And they said, how could you go and eat with a Gentile? Until he explained to them, how is it that God made it known to him that actually salvation is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews? So it definitely was not understood by the Jews, um, even in the New Testament, you know, at the beginning, that that the, that salvation was actually for everyone. Yeah. So it was godly driven in the sense that they they did what or they strive to do what God had asked them to do. But in all of the things that were done, they were symbols of, of the spiritual version that was still to come that had not been revealed. Like, for instance, God asked them to offer sacrifices, but those sacrifices in themselves did not offer salvation. But it was a preparation for the Messiah who would offer himself for salvation. Circumcision was a physical sign to be among the people of God, which was a symbol of what was to come after it, which is baptism, which is the spiritual sacrament to be among the people of God. So many of the things that happened in the Old Testament was done without an understanding of why we're doing these things or what they mean. And only in the New Testament, once you understand the spiritual version, that then you look back at the Old Testament and say, now I understand. I understand why God was preparing them for the fulfillment, which was to come later. So, the Jews were not given the fullness of the message. They were asked to obey what they were asked to do, and they didn't have an understanding, right? They didn't have that understanding. We in the New Testament, we have that understanding now, so we can understand it, but they didn't initially. Well, I mean, the, the, the Jews believe that they are the rightful owners of the nation of Israel as a result of the fact that they are the children of Abraham and God promised Abraham that the land that he is on is going to become for his descendants. They interpret in a literal sense that the children of Abraham are the Jewish people and that the land is the physical land of Israel. So they believe that it is their God-given right to be in Israel because this is the land given to them by God. But back to the idea of the of the spiritual understanding, the spiritual understanding of the covenant, right, is that this fulfillment is in the church, not in the Jewish people, right? So in the church, 
God is fulfilling all of these things. Which in, so it's, he's not speaking about a specific land. When he spoke about the descendants of Abraham, he was not talking about the Jewish descendants. He was talking about the spiritual descendants of Abraham, which are all of the Christians. So the church is the fulfillment of the, the, the covenant. But because they don't believe that, they're focusing very much on that land. Okay? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, for every blessing you give us. Help us to have an understanding of our faith and to live it, O Lord, daily as we go about our days. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.